This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Blessed Be Magic. Blessed Be Magic is a jewelry brand for the modern witch, creating subtle and tasteful talisman jewelry to remind you of your magic. You're a modern witch living in the real world. And maybe it's not that your lifestyle is a secret, it's just that you're not exactly flying around on a broomstick wearing a pointy hat. And you are not alone. It can be hard to find subtle, witchy jewelry that you feel comfortable wearing every day. But that's why Blessed Be Magic was born. With over 700 five-star reviews, these tasteful talismans are designed to be worn with your existing jewelry collection or on their own. The beauty is, Blessed Be Magic jewelry won't draw unnecessary attention to your secret beliefs. Plus, you'll get to wear a constant reminder of your magic every day. Visit them at www.blessedbemagic.com, and magic is spelled with a C-K at the end, and use code WITCHWAVE for 15% off your first order. Check out Blessed Be Magic's modern take on classic magical symbols such as the Triple Goddess and Pentacle in their minimalist jewelry that you can wear every day, anywhere. Again, visit them at www.blessedbemagic.com, that's magic with a C-K, and use code WITCHWAVE for 15% off your first order. This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by The Disco Dolls Studio. The Disco Dolls Studio is a boutique, salon, and art gallery located in Tampa, Florida. Started by lovely sisters, the hairstylist Christine and fashion designer Leanne, together with their dear friend and artist Beth. The mission at the Disco Dolls is sustainable luxury. They aim to create a culture of quality, sustainability, and careful consumerism. With a nod to the past, they wish to captivate, fascinate, enchant, and charm the observer. Every Disco Dolls vendor is hand-selected, most of them being women creators and small batch makers. From the hand-poured candles made just down the street, to the unique artisan jewelry and talismans they offer, each product is backed with the Disco Dolls' confidence. And the Disco Dolls' in-house clothing line features one-of-a-kind ceremonial pieces and the Uniform Project a collection of sustainably made classic silhouettes for every body. Made from eco-friendly bamboo, these garments are made for whatever the day may bring you, and they are beautiful. Locals are encouraged to stop in to experience the difference of quality sustainability five days a week, including Saturdays, and everyone can visit their online store at thediscodolls.com to browse all the boutique has to offer. Follow them on their social media accounts, including Instagram and Facebook, at The Disco Dolls. This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Witchy Washy Bath. Witchy Washy Bath makes everyday magic easy with their handcrafted, vegan, and cruelty-free bath offerings. They provide basic bath witches with colorful and eclectic whipped soaps and sugar scrubs, bath bombs, shower steamers, and much, much more. 
Be sure to check out their bestseller, the Love Your V Feminine Care Soap, and their bi-monthly occult classic subscription box featuring curated products based off your favorite occult movies and shows. Find them over on Instagram at witchywashybath and on their website at www.witchywashybath.com and use code WITCHWAVE13 for 13% off your order. The world is filled with bewitching people, and you might be one too. Welcome to the podcast where art is magic, magic is real, and reality is stranger than dreams. I'm Pam Grossman, and this is The Witch Wave. Hello and welcome to the Witch Wave. Happy, happy spring. I hope you had a beautiful vernal equinox and a blessed Ostara. I'm recording this from our little mountain house and it is fully 12 degrees colder up here than it is down at our apartment in Brooklyn. But even with the colder weather up here, spring is springing. Our tree in the front yard is beginning to bud, and green shoots of some mysterious plant in the backyard have begun to emerge. We bought this house at the end of October, and so our little bit of land is still pretty much a mystery to us. I'm so excited to see what starts to blossom and to figure out what new viridescent magic I can plant. One of our recent additions is a little bird feeder hanging off the eave of our patio. And as a primarily city mouse, I gotta say, this bird feeder is utterly riveting to me. Matt and I have been sitting at our kitchen window and basically watching bird TV. Chickadees and woodpeckers have found their way to the feeder, and the yard has been full of robins and blue jays and cardinals. Oh my! What's so lovely about this bird feeder is that in addition to getting to know our avian neighbors, it gives us an opportunity to really observe flight up close. And it's not just a uniform motion. There's flapping and whirring and gliding and hovering, and it's all pretty miraculous. And it brings to mind the feathered beings that populate the fantastical environments of today's guest, the artist Ritika Merchant. Some of her painted creatures have human bodies and bird heads, and some of them are whirling masses of feathers with dozens and dozens of eyes. Winged beings, particularly flying women, 
is a motif that is very close to both of our hearts. And as you'll hear, Ritika and I are both fans of Serenity Young, who wrote the book Women Who Fly, Goddesses, Witches, Mystics, and Other Airborne Females. During our conversation, Ritika references an essay that Serenity wrote for the Oxford University Press blog in 2018 when her book was first released. And just for a little bit of extra context, I thought I'd read an excerpt of that essay now. Serenity Young's essay is called Female First, Aerial Women in Mythology, Pop Culture, and Beyond. And in it, she writes, quote, Aerial women in mythology represent power and freedom. They have been worshipped as bird goddesses, valkyries, winged goddesses, and witches. These and other flying females from a wide variety of cultures are linked to sexuality, death and rebirth, or immortality. She goes on to write, From the earliest bird goddesses to the space age, some women have refused to be defined by the restrictive gravity of men's wishes or desires. Their ability to fly empowered them to impose conditions on men or to escape roles they found constricting. Unquote. In today's episode, Ritika speaks about feminine flight, the importance of telling stories about mythic heroines, or in her case, painting them, and so much more. But before we get to that, first, let's check and see what's come through on The Witch Wire. Who is it? Witches! Sierra writes... When I left the church of my youth several years ago, I became pretty jaded. I had believed in something so steadfastly that turned out to be not only false, but carefully crafted to mislead me and generations of my family and friends about the truth of its origins. While I appreciate how scripture and worship saw me through early life, I can't help feeling betrayed by them now. I feel intensely triggered by practices and passages that used to be sources of power and poetry. There is not much I trust enough to put any actual faith into these days, which sadly translates to my relationships and my craft. While I don't anticipate that these misgivings will ever go away entirely, I would love to learn how to put aside my cynicism long enough for me to still appreciate the gems of knowledge and strength from my former life, and maybe open myself up to new faith experience within my current witchcraft journey. Do you happen to have any advice or plan to have any conversations around this topic on your show? Any thoughts are welcome and appreciated. Hi, Sierra. Ooh, that would be a great topic for the show. And yes, religion and specifically Christianity and witchcraft has come up a bit here and there, but we haven't really dedicated a full episode to it. That's a really great idea. 
but I know that there are many witches who still identify as Christian or who have otherwise incorporated some of their Christian upbringing into their witchcraft. But first of all, let me just say that I'm so sorry you had such a fraught relationship with your religion of origin, and I know so many others can relate because I get messages like this all the time or some variation of it. So you are definitely not alone, and I hope that brings you some comfort. Now, in regard to your specific question, I think that the best advice I have to give is to see if you can figure out ways to reframe all religions as having beautiful, poetic truths that they point to, rather than them being sources of literalism. Because I think that is where we run into all kinds of problems. The fundamentalist, literal readings of texts that, at least in my opinion, were always meant to be perhaps semi-historical, but also metaphorical and poetic and symbolic. In other words, the Bible is not journalism. Neither is the Quran or the Upanishads or Gerald Gardner's Book of Shadows, for that matter. And I think the more widely we expose ourselves to the texts and stories and myths of other religions or cultures outside those of our families, the more we have no choice but to see that there is wisdom, inspiration, and truth in all of them. Now, I'm absolutely not suggesting becoming a convert or a practitioner of any of these other systems. I know that cultural appropriation is a huge issue. I'm simply saying being a curious student of them, reading about them, exposing yourself to those other stories and bodies of knowledge. A book that really unlocked this concept for me when I was young is actually a book-length interview that the mythologist Joseph Campbell and the journalist Bill Moyers put out together. And this book is called The Power of Myth. Now, the book was actually the transcript of a multi-part TV special that they did in the 1980s, so if you'd rather just track down the special and watch it, that works too. But this book really helped crystallize for me the notion that even though there are important historical contexts for each culture that are specific and unique and absolutely must be acknowledged and respected, there are also so many similarities between all of our myths and legends and our needs and our desires and observations as human beings. And my hope for you is that by studying these other stories and symbols, you can then approach some of the spirit and artistry of Christianity through that same lens of appreciation and that you can reweave some of that beauty back into your witchcraft, but that you can reclaim it as your own 
and take from it what resonates and what inspires you to be a kinder, more creative, more loving human being. Because that's ultimately what a lot of mystical texts of all cultures are trying to encourage in the first place. So I want you to hear this. You are empowered to leave religious dogma at the door. Most of the stuff that made you feel bad or triggered is presumably very political and had a specific context to the people it was written by and for many, many, many years ago. And I believe that we're allowed to evolve those elements. I think maybe we're even supposed to. And you are also empowered to connect to the mysticism of the Christian symbols and passages that do resonate with you. You don't have to throw it all away, in other words. And I'll tell you what, I say this from experience as someone who was raised Jewish and drifted away from it as a young adult and toured witchcraft, who now in my 40s is rediscovering Judaism, albeit through a much more magical, feminist, even witchy lens. And these processes take time. It takes time to deprogram ourselves from the prior reactions and associations and even traumas that we have from the parts of our religions of origin that are damaging. But if you're feeling called to reconnect to some of the magic and mysticism of Christianity, which is very much there, then it is absolutely worth the journey. Remember, your path is your own. I look so forward to witnessing as you embark further upon it. Now, on to my guest. Ritika Merchant is a visual artist from Mumbai, India. Her work explores myths, stories, and ideas shared by different cultures, featuring creatures and symbolism that are part of her personal visual vocabulary. I first encountered Ritika's work in person via her Luna Tabulatorum show at Stephen Romano Gallery in 2015, and those paintings incorporated lunar deities and cross-cultural moon lore with such stunning inventiveness and beauty that, of course, I fell head over heels in love. What choice did I have? The following year, I invited Ritika to take part in the art exhibition that I curated at NYU called Language of the Birds, Occult and Art, and I have remained an ardent fan of hers ever since. Ritika received a BFA in Fine Arts from Parsons School of Design in New York, and she has exhibited extensively since her graduation, including a number of solo exhibitions in India, France, Spain, Germany, and the United States. 
She has also collaborated with Chloe, a French fashion house, on multiple occasions for which she was awarded the Vogue India Young Achiever of the Year Award and its Women of the Year Award in 2018. She was also named one of Vogue magazine's Vogue World 100 Creative Voices. She is also the winner of the Sovereign Asian Art Prize, Vogue Hong Kong Women's Art Prize for her painting, Sodad, as well as Le Prix de Saint-Paris 21. As a quick content warning, Ritika does make reference to a sexual assault incident that was in the news, though she does not go into graphic detail, but just a fair warning. Ritika joined me from her home in Barcelona via Zoom. Ritika Merchant, welcome to The Witch Wave. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm a big fan of the show, actually. I listen fairly religiously, and yeah, I'm really happy to be here. What an honor. Thank you so much for telling me that. Well, the feelings are so mutual. I've been such a fan of yours and your work, as you know, for it feels like a hundred years now. You are truly one of my favorite artists, so it's a pleasure to finally talk. Yeah, I know. I'm so excited to, to chat with you today. So listen, I want to start by asking, where are you right now? Because I know you do a lot of traveling and you split your time between a few spaces. So where are you? So I'm in Barcelona right now, but I'm about to go to India for two months. And I divide my time between both places. I'm actually in the process of setting up a new studio in Mumbai and spending even more time there than I do already. How fabulous. I know of your Indian roots. I did not know that you're living in Barcelona now. How long have you been there? Um, On and off for almost 10 years. Okay. And what brought you out there? I ended up in Lisbon like 10 years ago, more than 10 years ago, in 2009 after I graduated college. I went to Lisbon after an artist residency and I met Francois, my husband. We met in Lisbon. We dated for a bit. Then we decided to get married, went to Belgium got married and I was there briefly while he finished his master's program. And then after that, we were like, should we move back to Lisbon? We really like it. But we kind of wanted a bit of a change, maybe a slightly bigger city. And so we said, let's try Barcelona for a year and then just kind of stayed. (laughs) How fabulous. Am I remembering correctly that you did live in New York at some point too? Yeah, I went to college in New York. I went to Parsons. Oh my goodness. So where did you grow up? I grew up in India. I grew up in Mumbai. So I was born and raised there, been there till I was 18, and then went to college in New York. And then since then, I've kind of been between Europe and India. So I feel like this is very relevant, not only insofar as it's just interesting, but because when I think of your paintings and, and all of the other beautiful work that you create, I think of it as being extremely I don't know if universal is the right word, but it really feels like you're pulling on a lot of different influences from different mythological spaces and different cultures. Am I correct that some of this is because you travel so much or or did you always kind of have that language? No, massively so, actually. And I think that like my interest in comparative mythology really came from being in so many different places and kind of missing India, but then also kind of liking to be in Europe and loving life here. And and it is a big part of why I've chosen to divide my time between the both, because I like both. And I'm lucky enough to be able to do that. 
But I think living in so many places and having traveled around quite a bit, I've kind of seen the people are much more similar than you would think. And also, I guess, learning more about the history. You see that like all of these stories are completely interlinked. There are so many similarities. And it made me really interested in comparative mythology because that was such an extension of sort of what I was seeing and living. When you talk about comparative mythology, that's something I'm familiar with as like I'm a huge Joseph Campbell nerd and yeah, me that he was really important to me, yeah. especially when I yeah. was a young person. I would love you to unpack that phrase comparative mythology a little bit more, though, for someone who might not be familiar with it or with his work. I also love Joseph Campbell. I actually did an entire series of work called My Monomyth mm. that was the hero's journey, but from the female perspective. And I started working on this series of work. I don't know if you were aware of this, but there was a really brutal gang rape in India. It was all over the news. You may have heard about it. Mm. And for me, Bombay had always been a relatively safe city. I felt really comfortable in it. Like my whole life, I grew up there. And after this happened, I don't know, I, was, I just felt kind of shaken, you know? It's like a place you consider home and this really brutal act happens then. I don't know, it changes your perspective, I guess, on a place that you really love. Sure. And I found myself at the time wanting to create this strong female character almost to make myself feel better. Mm. And I was reading all of these books and I read Hero with a Thousand Faces. It's actually on the bookshelf behind me right now. Yeah. And I was like, a lot of these stories are from the male perspective. And I wanted to do, it's sort of semi-autobiographical, these works. I made this strong female character who goes through life and it was this act of self-soothing. Yes. So it was me trying to make myself feel better in the face of this really traumatic thing that had happened in the city. And I think as an extension, I think my art practice in general is that. When I think about it, a lot of it is self-soothing as a reaction to all of these awful things that like go on in the world. Mm. But to answer your question about comparative mythology, comparative mythology essentially is when you look at similar myths across cultures, so you could look at like an African creation myth and you can look at an Indian creation myth and like a European creation myth. The flood myth is a really good example of that. Yes. All three of these, you will find that there is a very similar myth about this all-encompassing flood that wipes everything out on Earth or like the universe at the time and then a new universe forms. That's really basic comparative myth. There's the cosmic egg. That's another comparative myth that you will find. I mean, it's very common to many different cultures. And it's sort of that like mythical thread of unanimity. It's very interesting to me. I think it tells you a lot about what well, I think myths in general tell you a lot about certain cultures and comparative mythology in general just shows you that we're all the same. Absolutely. I should bring into the conversation just for the listener who might be new to some of this material that Joseph Campbell, as many people are, has come into some criticism. Mm -hmm. He was certainly not a perfect dude, and he certainly had some weird views mm -hmm. about women. Mm. At one point, he was asked, well, what are the myths for women? What is the monomyth? Yeah. And he was like, oh, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but something like, oh, yeah. well, they help mm -hmm. the hero or they stay at home. And it yeah. was just really pretty messed up, especially because if I'm remembering correctly, he taught at an all-women's university. I think it was Sarah Lawrence or one of those places. Really? Yes. It's like, dude. But this was also several decades ago. Yet still, I think a lot of his principles were so groundbreaking. Mm -hmm. I do think that the flip side of it is, especially in this age of like people being so wonderfully sensitive about cultural appropriation and yeah. not wanting to like dilute anybody's culture or steal from anyone's culture. There's new things to add to the conversation of quote unquote universal mythology. And yet it's true. We are all human. 
we do live on yeah. this planet with seasons. There's birth and death and Ooh. everything in between. And your work to me feels like it does such a beautiful balance of pulling on these different threads of mythology while still coming up with this entirely unique world that feels very Rithika Merchant. Oh, well, thank you. That's I mean, that's really kind of you. And I really appreciate you saying that. To your point about Joseph Campbell, I think we read so many things from like decades ago or centuries ago even. And in a way, making a female protagonist sort of takes the power back. Yes. And feeding on what he has written, making it my own was the way to do that. Because there are so many writers and musicians and people who I love and inspired by. And I have learned they are incredibly problematic. Yep. I mean, this is just a huge topic. Total tangent that we do not have to go on right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are so many references where I'm like, yeah, this person is problematic and they have problematic views. But I also think it's okay to acknowledge that and still see the value in some of what they have written. I don't think it invalidates everything he's ever done. I agree with you 100%. He's still one of my heroes. I mean, he yeah. really had such a huge shaping on my points of view and also just was a great springboard for me to then leap off and then do more of my own research and discover some of my own yeah. threads of knowledge too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And ultimately, I feel like we're all products of our time. And who knows? I mean, 100 years from now, maybe something that we have said and done could be extremely problematic. Oh, not not me, Ratika. No way. <laughs> I'm realizing in my enthusiasm to talk to you that we have mm -hmm. not yet described your work. And this is mm. an auditory medium. So I would love to give you the challenge I ask all of my visual magical artists, which is can you try and describe your work for someone who may not have seen it yet? Mm. I primarily work on paper. I work with watercolor, I work with gouache, I work with ink. The work is very detailed. I use a lot of imagery from like tarot, folk art, tantric symbolism. I love folk art and I love esoteric art. So you'll see symbols, things that if you're familiar that with that kind of art, you might recognize a little bit. There's lots of hands and eyes in my work, lots of leaves and flowers. There's a lot of nature. Some of the works can be quite desaturated. I love the aesthetic maps or like old paintings. So I go for these relatively desaturated, warm tones. I have, a, there's a lot of animal human hybrids in my work. Yes. You really do pull, as we said already, on a lot of threads of mythology also. And there's lots of planets and moons mm -hmm. and stars and cosmological mm -hmm. bits to your work, as well as lots of elemental bits. I know you did a yeah. whole series on water, for example. So this real mm -hmm. spirit of nature, cosmology, yeah. magic, mythology. Oh, and it is just so beautiful. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. So. In terms of, let's start with the animal-human hybrids, because one motif that I see in your work a lot are mm. kind of like bird-headed beings. And I would love to learn about what that figure yeah. means to you or represents to you. So one of the reasons I use animal-human hybrids as opposed to figures, mm -hmm. some more recent, they're just kind of silhouettes. But I've always done this because I've always wanted the figures to be free of gender, free of ethnicity, free of any kind of marker where you could identify them and relate them to something, because I would almost like the viewer to inhabit the, the figure themselves. And I've always liked birds, and I've always chosen to use bird heads. Sometimes it depends on the myth. I use the ibis a lot because it, according to Egyptian mm -hmm. mythology, they're related to timekeeping. 
And that is sort of a theme that goes through my work. I like prey birds and eagles because they have certain associations to the sun. So I choose the bird head according to what the overarching narrative of the piece is. As I said, it would be an ibis or it could be either a crow head or an eagle head or a peregrine falcon head. And for me, they've linked to a myth in some way, but also kind of represent the every person, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I love that. You also have a series of paintings that I am obsessed with. It's just called Aerial Women, or at least Mm. that's how you've named it on your website. Yeah. And a lot of these are, it looks like people made almost entirely out of feathers or wings. And they remind me of like some almost like Christian or Jewish biblical Mm. imagery that I'm familiar with, where it's like these winged, crazy angels with tons of eyes. But I'm wondering how you developed that kind of creature. Yeah, you know, weirdly, a lot of people have told me it kind of reminds them of seraphim. Yes, that's exactly it. Yeah, that's the feedback I've got. You know, I just kind of started doing it. I obviously had seen pictures of seraphims, although they look a little bit different. But that idea of these eyes sucked into feathers. But this whole series of work came, I read this essay by Serenity Young, and I highly (gasps) recommend that everyone reads this essay. It's so good. Sorry, I just took a sharp intake of breath because I have her book, Women Who Fly, Ooh, yeah. and Women Who Fly. It's awesome. Yeah. Okay, but please keep going, keep going. So I think this essay that I read, it, I found it on the Oxford University Press, but I think it might be an excerpt from that book, which I haven't read, but it's on my book list. Mm-hmm. Or she wrote it and then wrote the book, but it's very much related to that book. And I read it and I was so taken with the stories and like her analysis of why women were always represented with wings throughout history and in so many myths. I found it so interesting. And to really summarize it, she essentially says that ancient depiction of winged females and winged and not winged males essentially suggested that women had the special power that men did not. Mm. According to the myth, either it's the men in the myth try to curtail this power, or it's a story of this the freedom that this power brings women. Mm, I love that. But I don't know, this idea of just experiencing this profound sense of freedom and power in a world where women in so many places, women just don't have it, it just was so appealing to me. And it was so inspiring to me. And it really was how this whole body of work kind of started. I mean, that essay really, yeah, it really made me so interested. So I researched a lot of myths to do with winged women, and you find them across all cultures. It's just so common. I mean, you find them everywhere. Ah, I love that. So that's how this body of work came to be. It reminds me of, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Dark Crystal. Have you seen that? Oh my God. Yeah. Love. It's one of my favorite films. It's one of my favorite films too. And there's that (laughs) moment when Kira, the little girl gelfling, unfurls her wing and flies. And Jen, the boy, I forget exactly what he says, but it's something to the effect of like, oh my gosh, I can't fly. I don't have wings. And she's Mm -hmm. like, that's because you're a boy, silly. (laughs) I know. This is very that. Exactly. (laughs) On that note, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Baby Bushka, the Kate Bush experience of your dreams. Baby Bushka is an eight-woman powerhouse troupe of musicians based in San Diego, California, that perform an operatic pop night of Kate Bush's music that transcends the word tribute to create a wild, joyous celebration that is simply unforgettable. Now, some of you probably know that I am a huge fan of the goddess Kate Bush, 
of course, so you know that I'm dying to see these ladies perform myself. With great respect and wide eyes, Baby Bushka delivers otherworldly versions of your favorite Bush songs, from the ethereal to the bombastic and back again. Filled with four-part harmonies and epic choreographed dancing, Baby Bushka captures the wonder of Baroque pop and the beauty of 80s glam into a night of virtuoso musical creativity you have to experience to believe. Die-hard Kate Bush fans and new converts around the world can't stop talking about the life-changing music of a Baby Bushka show. LA Weekly describes them as wonderfully bewitching, kooky, otherworldly, and proclaims that after seeing Baby Bushka, you will want to take your shoes off and throw them in a lake. <laughs> yes. Baby Bushka will be on tour through California this April before heading on a three-week tour across Ireland and the UK this May. You can visit their website, ilovebabybushka.com, to learn more. That's ilovebabybushka.com. This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Zoo's Incense, who make some of my favorite incense on earth. I love that Zoo's Incense is an all-natural, handmade product, and that all of their ingredients are organic or wild-crafted using whole plants, seeds, roots, woods, tree resins, and tinctures. Zoo's has nine incense blends currently available, and each one smells like a sacred temple. They also now have monthly incense subscriptions for you incense heads, and these are discounted over their regular prices. Zoos also offers incense making kits for your own incense crafting experiments at home, and they now also offer gorgeous hand cast concrete burners, as well as charcoal, raw aromatics like frankincense and myrrh, and incense supplies. And on top of all that, Zoos also offers seasonal incense-making workshops online, and you can keep tabs on that by checking out their website. Now, I adore Zoos Incense so much that I've collaborated with them on my very own Witch Wave Incense Blend, which is inspired by my matron moon goddess Artemis and contains sandalwood, orris root, myrrh, black storax, mugwort, ambret seed tincture, and organic ylang-ylang essential oil, and which smells like nectar and ambrosia. The Witch Wave blend is available exclusively in the Witch Wave shop at witchwavepodcast.com shop, so be sure to check that out. And you can find Zuz's other bewitching blends, such as Sunsmoke and Bacchus, on their website, which is zoosincense.com. That's Z-O-U-Z incense.com. And best of all, promo code WITCHWAVE gets you 10% off of orders from their site. And if you are ordering from their site, you'll also get free shipping on orders over $35. And this works with the WITCHWAVE promo code too. 
So go ahead and check them out at zoosincense.com and use promo code WITCHWAVE for 10% off. I'm a big fan of therapy and have seen firsthand how much talking to a professional has helped me manage my own anxiety and stress and trauma so that I can live the fullest life I possibly can. I've also seen how it's changed the lives of so many people that I care about for the better as well. And that's why I am encouraging you to check out BetterHelp, which is an online counseling service that can provide you with your own licensed professional counselor to talk to via video or phone sessions. And it doesn't have to be that heavy of a topic. Maybe you just need a place to be heard and have an outside perspective on your everyday struggles with your job or your relationships. We all have so much that we're carrying with us these days between our personal issues and, need I say, global issues. And it's just a lot. And I'm telling you, Talking it all through with someone who is trained and objective and not a friend or family member is such a gift. Because their job, their actual job, is to listen to you and help you work through your feelings about it all. So please consider reaching out to the folks at BetterHelp and they'll connect you with a counselor who you can start chatting with in under 24 hours. And they've been doing remote sessions since before it became the norm, so they've built a platform that's accessible, convenient, and secure. Also know that BetterHelp offers financial aid to those who qualify, and they make it really easy to switch counselors so you can find one that you truly click with. Best of all, Witchwave listeners get 10% off your first month of counseling by going to betterhelp.com slash witchwave. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com slash witchwave. Please take care of your mental well-being. It is so necessary, and there is absolutely support out there for you. Do what over a million people have done already and head on over to betterhelp.com slash witchwave, find a great counselor to talk to, and know that I am here rooting for you. Feel well and take good care with BetterHelp. Welcome back to the Witchwave. Today I'm speaking with Ritika Merchant. So we were talking about where some of your imagery comes from in your paintings. And I'm noticing, I keep calling them paintings, even though they are works on paper. Do you consider them yes. paintings, not drawings? Or I consider them paintings. I know people refer to works on paper as drawings, but I mean, I paint them. I use a paintbrush. I use watercolor. To me, they're paintings. Great. So I want to jump into the materials of how you work, though. You mentioned some of the materials that you use. Mm -hmm. And I noticed paper is kind of a through line as mm -hmm. the primary canvas that you work on. And I've yeah. been so lucky to get to see some of your work in person. And I got to show one of your paintings in a, a show yeah. I curated a number of years ago. And I noticed that there's a lot of folds. Mm. And that doesn't necessarily translate in a JPEG as clearly as seeing it in yeah. person. So can you talk a little bit about texture and why there are folds and that kind of patterning in the paper that you use sometimes? 
Yeah. So basically the work started when I was in Lisbon, I kept seeing all of these amazing tile murals and they're called azulejos. And these azulejos essentially show these usually historical scenes and they're these like beautiful narrative works of art. And I just really loved them and was super inspired by them. So a lot of my early works are actually cut up into sections, like the tiled paper works that I then would mount together to almost make this sort of paper mural. But then as time went on, that kind of evolved into me folding the work to sort of section it out. And, you know, honestly, I just I love the way it looks. It gives the work this almost sculptural dimension, like when you see it in person, it gives it almost this quilted effect. And it's kind of reminiscent of old maps or these old drawings that you might pull out of a drawer and you unfold it and you open it. And it does give you that feeling of something that was maybe hidden away that you have then found and opened up and there's this image there, you know? And again, as time has gone on, I've gotten so attached almost to these folds. I call them the scaffolding of my paintings, where I sort of build the work almost on top of these folds. I use them to color block. I use them to figure out the composition of the work. Like the composition of the work is very much informed by the fold. So I'll often like think about what I want to paint and then I'll fold first and then I'll start drawing. It's very much a part of the process and it's almost how I prep the paper. Ah. Yeah, I was going to ask if you do the folding first or the folding after. And I have to say, I'm kind of relieved you do the folding first. first. (laughs) (laughs) The idea of you, I mean, we didn't say earlier, your paintings are extremely intricate as Mm. well. So the idea of you maybe like folding this intricate thing and it like crackling or something was giving me nightmares (laughs) or daymares, I should say. Am I correct that you have also worked with literal collage at times too? Are you cutting and then reapplying and gluing paper down too in moments? So I also do more abstract works. My collages are mostly abstract works, although some of my more figurative works do have collage elements in them. So I'll make the collage elements. If you see some of my paintings will have these patterned borders, which I will usually hand paint. Sometimes I even use magazine cutouts and I'll make cut out trees and things like that. But the more graphic abstract collages, I make all the elements from them and they're sort of a more intuitive part of my practice. I kind of sort of go into this other realm when I do them and it's just a way for me to visually and graphically express an idea that I have without it being this whole figurative story. Mm, It sounds like meditative almost. It's very meditative. Yeah, it is. It almost feels like I'm doing a little spell, if that makes sense. I mean, now you know you're speaking my language. Come on. Can you talk a little more about that? I know some people are very private about what that means, but, you know, you were speaking earlier about how sometimes making these works almost feels like a protective working for Mm. you. How does spell work figure into the creation of your pieces? To me, I feel like spell work is almost putting an intention out there into the world. And I started making these graphic collages as part of the Voyager series of work that has a lot to do with the Mediterranean migrant crisis. Mm. And making these works, it really did feel like I was setting this intention. And so much of it felt very intuitive. I wasn't thinking about it that much. It wasn't planned out, you know. It really felt like I was tapping into this part of myself, in some ways, even these wishes that I had for the world and just doing them. And they're the one part of my practice when I'm doing it, I really do feel like time kind of disappears. And sometimes I'll realize I've just been making this collage for like six hours. And I wouldn't have really realized that it's gone on for that long. Yeah, yeah. It's the best feeling, isn't it? It's the best feeling. It's a very precious part of my practice, I would say, you know, because I completely unplanned and I I really like it. I go layer by layer and I just build them. Mm. 
I mean, I'm feeling calmer just listening to you talk <laughs> about that because it seems like, yes, there's something to the drawing and the painting aspect, mm-hmm. but this feels very much like crafting. Yes, I love crafting. I'm big into crafting and I'm a very DIY person. This really does feel that way. And, you know, so much of my other work, because like it's influenced by myth and I read a lot and I do a lot of research. And this is a really nice part of my practice where I don't do any of that. It's just an idea and it's just a feeling and that's all it is. And there's something really nice about that. Mm. So speaking of crafting, in the last couple Mm. of years, you have worked in what I believe is a new medium for you, which is clothing and accessories Mm. by collaborating (laughs) with the French fashion house Chloe. And I'd love to hear how that collaboration came to be and what that experience was like for you. So Chloe actually found me randomly. Well, this is what they told me, essentially, that Mm -hmm. someone had put together an inspiration board and one of my paintings was on it. And Mm -hmm. they were like, oh, who is this artist? And then they looked me up and they literally cold emailed me. They found my work just looking online Mm. and it sort of ended up in front of Natasha and she really liked it. And so they cold emailed me and I worked with them on like three collections. Wow. And Natasha, is she the head of the line now? She was the creative director at the time. Um, Gabriella Hurst is the creative director now. At the time when I worked with Chloe, she was the creative director. Yeah, it was just an amazing experience. And it was one of those experiences where I think all the cards were in the right place because it just came about. There wasn't a lot of back and forth. Natasha seemed to like my work and she gave me a lot of freedom to also do what I wanted. The, The way you do it is you have to scan in all of the paintings. So I had made five paintings, which we then scanned in. Then I sat with their team and you have to take the pattern of the garment and place the painting on it. But a painting is essentially a rectangle and a a dress is not. So you do have to sort of make some adjustments. And we also mixed and matched elements of different paintings to make each dress. And it was such an amazing process. It just seemed to work. Everyone was happy with the way it was going. When I would take her things to show her, she was very responsive to it. So I don't know, it felt very easy. It felt very natural. And I feel very grateful for that because it was my first time doing anything like this. Absolutely. And I know some artists, they have mixed feelings about crossing into what may be perceived as like the commercial world, which Mm. I know that if you're an artist, you're in the commercial world if you're trying to make a living at it anyway. So these are very fine lines that we're parsing, but I'm so glad it was a good experience for you. That's a real relief to hear. Yeah, it was a good experience. And also to speak to that point, I totally know what you mean. And I think it would be one thing if I as an artist, for example, was doing collaborations or things like this nonstop. But because this felt so special and I've done so few of them, to me, it didn't really feel like I was crossing any boundary, I guess, that I had with myself. And as you said, I mean, if it is your profession, it is what it is. To be fair, it didn't feel like this like crazy commercial prospect. There was a lot of artistry still behind it. You know, I didn't feel like, oh, I just licensed my images to someone and they did whatever with it. I think because I was such a big part of putting it together, it really did feel like an almost an extension of my artwork. Mm. A two-dimensional painting became three-dimensional. How fabulous. And of course, so many artists that we love worked in textiles. And Mm. I'm thinking about so many of them. But I know you share my love of like Leonora Carrington and Remedios Varro and these artists that have worked in many, many different mediums. Mm. 
And actually, Chloe, as a house, has a long history of working with artists. And the paintings that I did, so the collection I worked with with Natasha was her first collection with the house she had just started. And one of the things she had wanted to do was pay homage to creative directors before her. And one of the inspirational images that they sent me was Karl Lagerfeld, when he was the creative director, Chloe, had worked with an artist to make these painted dresses. And she had wanted to do a version of that. And so that's where I came in to work with her to make her version of the painted dress. Wow, what a legacy to be upholding. That's amazing. Yeah, so it, it really was amazing. As I said, so it felt less commercial, even though obviously it is commercial and definitely I'm not going to say that it wasn't. It did definitely feel like a true extension of my own artist practice made it even more special for me. How fabulous. And of course, I have to ask, did you get to keep any of the garments? I did. I have a dress and I have a purse. Ah. Uh heaven on earth. That's wonderful. <laughs> Which I love. Yeah, I, I wear the purse a lot. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, we're going to take another quick break and we'll be right back. Bone Arrow is magical jewelry for mystics and misfits. If you like strange and unusual jewelry, then you'll love the magic in metal that designer and witch Claire Gregory makes in her workshop in Nottingham, England, using traditional silversmithing techniques on a wooden jewelry bench made by her father. Oh, I love that. Claire makes all of Bone Arrow's one-of-a-kind and occult-inspired jewelry with the bones of the earth, which are precious metals and gemstones, and adds rituals in the making process that harness the elements. Bone Arrow was born because Claire wanted to wear jewelry that meant something, that was as magical and meaningful as the crystals she collected. I truly love the various mystical symbols that Claire incorporates into her pieces. We're talking about swords and skulls and snakes and so much lunar imagery. Oh, talk about powerful. If you are a crystal addict or jewelry magpie too and want to wear jewelry that is magical and meaningful yourself, then head over to bonearrow.com. That's B-O-N-E. A-R-R-O-W dot com, where you can take 15% off your order with code WHICHWAVE. That's bonearrow.com. The Path 365, Daily Direction for Ladies and Mothers, Witches and Others, is a book that allows you to open your mind, body, and spirit to a path that is uniquely yours. As a gateway spirituality guide, it weaves coping mechanisms identified in neuroscience and mental health that address mind, body, and spirit, and incorporates them into an easy-to-read daily guide. Author Susie Newell received her doctorate from the University of Cincinnati with a focus on coping mechanisms. This book gently encourages people to open their mind to a spiritual path that feels right for them. Like a daily oracle read for the soul, The Path 365 takes you through a journey of positive self-discovery and encourages you to incorporate your practice into every aspect of your being. Whether you have a solid spiritual practice already or are exploring your options, The Path 365 is a unique guide to creating a path of your own. 
Visit them at thepath365.com for ordering options. And be sure to use code WITCHWAVE for free shipping. And you can give The Path 365 a follow on your favorite social media platform. We are all in this thing together. Create a path that works for you. Would you like even more Witch Wave? Then come join us on Patreon, where you'll get bi-weekly bonus Witch Wave Plus episodes, ad-free Witch Wave episodes, and detailed show notes for all. Rewards also include magical merch and giveaways, early heads up about my workshops before they sell out, and all backers get access to our exclusive digital coven, where I lead monthly rituals and video chats, and where you can connect to a community of other wonderful witches. So head on over to patreon.com witchwave and sign up. It's a fabulous way to get more magic in your life and to support the show. Thanks so much. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today I'm speaking with Ritika Merchant. So I would love to hear a little bit more about your upbringing. Were you raised with any kind of spiritual practice or religious orientation? So I was not raised with any sort of religious orientation, and I don't practice any religion at the moment. But I was raised with a bit of a spiritual practice in the sense that it's a really funny thing, but my grandfather, for example, on my mom's side, whenever any child in the family was born, would rush off to an astrologer and have uh, star charts drawn up. So I always kind of had that in the background. If anything, like, I know people don't believe in astrology, and I will say I, I don't live my life by it, but I love it. Like, <laughs> I, I really do love it. Same. And I do believe in parts of it. But that is something I feel like has been kind of a through line since I was a child. Like I've always been very interested in my horoscope. It's something that I've always thought about. And I think a big part of it is because maybe I like my grandfather was interested in that kind of stuff. Yeah. That whole side of the family is quite interested in astrology and has had its impact on me. And am I using the correct phrase? Is that Vedic astrology? Is that what it's called? I don't know if it's Vedic astrology. I mean, it's, I guess it's traditional astrology. Is there any difference? I mean, the star chart I have, has, you know, the houses and the planets, it's not, I don't think it's specifically Indian. I was under the impression, and I'm so happy to be corrected if I'm wrong. I was mm. under the impression, like, it wouldn't necessarily be the same words. It wouldn't necessarily be like Aquarius, oh. Gemini. Like, there would be a whole different kind of structure of myths and a different language. But maybe I'm completely wrong. No, you might be right, but English is my mother tongue, so ah, I'm I not sure about that. Yeah. I see. Thank you for yeah. correcting me on that. No, no problem. And this is like such a cliche thing to say, and I already know that it's like obnoxious, but I really am telling the truth when I say two of my best, best friends in the whole world, their families are from India. They grew up Ooh. here in America. I've been friends with these women for, gosh, over 20 years now. And so yeah, I've learned yeah. quite a bit of like Hindu mythology and yeah. a lot about the deities and different holidays and so on. But I've also mm -hmm. learned that India has lots of Muslim practitioners and Christian mm -hmm. practitioners. So I don't want to make any wrongful assumptions. Yeah. But were there certain influences of any of these mythological systems that I mentioned? Well, in terms of 
the imagery, for example, like just Mughal miniature art is essentially Islamic art and like that's had a huge impact on me. Are you asking in terms of like the astrology of it all or? I guess I was I was asking if any Hindu myths or Muslim myths, any of it mm. kind of made its way into your work just based on, you know, the region that you were growing up in kind of through osmosis. Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And those are the myths I'm probably the most familiar with because, you know, you grow up hearing like folk stories and reading about these myths. So, yeah, definitely in a huge way. And what are some of your favorite myths that you encountered when you were a young person? So my favorite myth, and I always say this, is the myth of the Bishkanya, which may actually not even be a myth and it could be true. But essentially, it's these young women I don't remember which era it was, but it's in ancient India. And they were given small amounts of poison. So their bodily fluids became poisonous. And then they were sort of deployed as these assassins to take <gasps> down rival kings. And that is one of my like favorite myths because it's sort of like these women who've been weaponized, but they're these young women, but they're like truly all powerful because they're poisonous, but they're immune to it. And it's a very interesting, like, role reversal, especially for ancient India. Oh, I love that. So would the idea be that they had kind of, like, poison in their own systems? And so if you, like, kissed yeah. them, you would exactly. die kind of thing? Oh. Yeah, like, their saliva would be essentially kind of poisonous. And also, like, well, if you had sex with them, you would die because any bodily fluid. Whoa. Yeah, it was during the Mauryan Empire. That was it. That is hardcore. I see. I yeah. love stuff like that. Have you worked with that imagery at all in your paintings, or is that? I have. There is a painting called Bishkanya, which I can send you like email later. Also, it's on my website actually. You, you can find it under Magical Thinking. The oh. Magical Thinking. Section. Okay, beautiful. I'll make sure that we link to that in the show notes. That's mm. so so awesome. Can you find a lot of these like quite interesting stories? I don't know if you're familiar with the story of the Crane Wife. It's in, it's a Chinese myth. Just a little bit, but please refresh my memory. I don't know the details. I could be saying it like a little bit wrong, but it's essentially a woman who is a crane. Every day she has this sort of coat that she puts on and she's actually a crane, but then she shapeshifts into a woman. And then one day her husband finds out and he steals her coat so she can't shapeshift anymore. And then essentially she finds her coat and then sets herself free. I love myths where women kind of take the power back. Oh, yes. Yeah. That's so wonderful. And that reminds me so much of myths from Scotland, the myth of the Mm. Selkie, where it was Mm. a woman who was kind of like a seal creature or some kind of a marine creature. And yeah, same thing. There's a wonderful animated film you might be familiar with called Song of the Sea. That Mm. uh, Have you seen that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't seen it, but I have heard of it. Oh, it's so gorgeous. But it's that similar idea of like a shape-shifting woman or Mm -hmm. girl who can change into a creature or from a creature to a human woman, but then her skin is trapped, her coat is trapped, and she gets stuck in human form. Yeah, yeah. And the idea of her trying to like get her skin back or her coat back or, you know, depending on the telling... And of course, there's that wonderful book, Women Who Run With the Wolves, that goes into some of this mythology too. Oh my goodness. My mind is going in a hundred directions now. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) So how do you decide 
what your next body of work is going to be about. Where do these ideas come from? What is your process for getting inspiration? You know, sometimes it's a response to what's going on around me. Like, as I said, with like the Voyager series, it was a response to the Mediterranean migrant crisis with like a more recent body of work, Birth of a New World. It's a response to the ongoing climate crisis. But then, you know, it could be something like just reading that essay by Serenity Young and like that sparks a whole, I don't know, flood of inspiration. And I wanted to do a series on aerial women. So it, it can really vary. It's either current events or sort of what I'm thinking about or what I'm dealing with or just something I'm extremely interested in feel very inspired by. Mm. And I noticed on Instagram, because I'm a little spy, (laughs) that you have a piece that you've been working on recently called Hermitess. And I love the bits of it that you've shared. And of course, it brings to mind tarot. I mean, I have felt like such a hermit over the last two years. So, you know, I understand if you don't want to give too much of your secret sauce away, but (laughs) is that kind of imagery something that you think you're going to be doing more with kind of tarot imagery or am I just jumping to conclusions? I have tarot cards. I actually do like a three card fold once a week just to kind of get my bearings Mm. and I've always really loved the image I actually got these tarot cards when I was a teenager I remember I was at a bookshop with my parents and there were these tarot cards and like a book about with like what each card meant and I like asked my mom if I she she could buy them for me and she did and so I've had those cards I think since I was like 13 and I really love them and I've always loved the imagery so I don't think I'd be doing a specific tarot inspired series but it's more the imagery that just finds its way into my work just in general, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I know that you work a lot with cosmological myths or specifically mm-hmm. cosmogony myths, you know, the myths yeah. about the creation of the world or the origin of the world. And yeah. I wondered if the world is always going through really hard things. And I think every generation probably at some point feels that the world is ending. And yet we are currently as we're recording this, and hopefully Mm -hmm. things will improve by the time this episode comes out, but we'll see, you know, there's war happening in Ukraine. There's, of course, (laughs) climate change. Mm -hmm. You know, everyone is acting here in New York City like the pandemic is over, but I I think... it's not. Exactly. So, I mean, and that's just three things off the top of my head, and of course, so many other things. I was just reading that there are supposed to be these giant spiders that drop from the sky that are going to invade the east coast it's like please stop um, but anyway and that's not to stress anybody out but i wonder if working on this grand cosmic scale which hmm. you do if that offers any kind of perspective or solace or even hope about humanity that you're trying to manifest well yeah i mean it's interesting that you use the word hope my most recent solo show, Birth of a New World, that was in India, that was the word the people used. They were like, this show gave us hope. But to be honest, on my end, it's self-soothing. Like at this point, I'm currently working on a body of work that's sort of set in the future. And it's all about like the sun's power and like how we as a civilization, like what we can learn from the sun and how eventually we might be able to get off this planet and like what that means for us. Mm. And I've realized my work, I don't know, I guess in the last couple of years with everything that's been going on, 
so much of it has been about like what are we going to do when we cease to exist because it really does feel like we as a civilization are like coming to an end we're either going to have to colonize another planet so like i just read a un report that said that actually climate change is a lot worse than we previously thought mm. so it really does feel like we're kind of at the end of the road and i'm trying to find that perspective just for myself to think about like what our future is going to be like and somehow looking at these like really big cosmological things or like sort of looking for answers in the stars, in some ways it feels really primitive because that's what they did in like primitive times. You look for answers in the stars, but like, I feel like that's just where I'm at emotionally, you know, with everything that's going on. You're just ready to peace out, huh? <laughs> I'm just ready to peace out. I'm like, we have just like ruined it for ourselves and we're getting what we deserve because we've just taken and taken and taken from the planet with no regard for the fact that so much of it is a finite resource. So sounds really bleak right now, but I do have hope and I do think we have evolved at this like amazing rate and we do have this need for self-preservation and we will figure out a way using the technology that we have. And I'm hopeful. I hope that that happens. And I mean, if you see my work, it isn't depressing, sad, bleak work. Like there is a lot of hope in it and I do hold on to that. But as I said, I am looking for answers in other places too. If your new body of work, which of course I haven't seen, so it's weird for me to talk about, but it almost yeah. feels like if we were talking about literature, it's like you're entering into your speculative fiction phase. That is exactly what it is. Yeah, you'll see this body of work. I'm going to be having a show in Paris in July, so it'll be on view then and I'll, the work will be public at that point too. How fabulous. Well, we just have a few final moments. I would love to know... How are you thinking about magic these days? I mean, I don't know if you consider yourself a witch specifically, but I certainly think of your work as very magical. What do either of those words bring up for you at this point in your life? Hmm. See, I don't know. I don't think I identify as a witch necessarily, but I like love witches and I love everything that witches represent. Like, I love everything that witches do, but I see my work almost as the magic that I make because as I was saying some of these works do feel like little spells and I do feel like I'm just like creating these things in my studio and like that these wishes and manifestations or this, this world that I guess I want to live in someone told me or I read somewhere that they say that when artists die they go into the world that they create and it really <gasps> stuck with me whoa right yeah it like kind of blew my mind it, it's true like uh, that needs to inform what I'm putting out into the world. For me, that is magic. It's like kind of creating this world, I guess, that I want to be in. Whoa. <laughs> that was a hell of a note <laughs> to end on, I have to say. Well, I think your work is so exquisite. Like what a heavenly paradisical kind of next phase for you if you will indeed get to eternally live inside your paintings oh and God, they're you. so beautiful I mean I would love to join you so hey yeah, sign well, me you. up and I have to say a small little note the show that you curated language of the birds that you very generously included my work in literally made one of my dreams come true because you included my work next to Kiki Smith's work and she's one of my all-time favorite artists Ah, me and too. It was such a career highlight for me. And that whole show was just so beautiful. And speaking of world building, I mean, I didn't get to see the show in person, but that did feel like you were stepping into like another world. And just the story you told with that show was amazing. And I was just so happy to be part of it. 
Oh, I was so honored to have your work be part of it. Thank you so much for saying that. Oh, thank you. Well, listen, I know people are going to want to see more of your work, if not get to purchase some of it, which is one of my dreams for myself someday. But I know you have catalogs online and things. So where's the best way for people to reach you and get to step into your gorgeous, magical world? My work, for the most part, is all on my website catalogs. Uh, It's just my name, RithikaMerchant.com, and there's catalogs of my work, so you can read essays about the work, and you can also sort of contextualize the work with the writing. Um, And then I'm on Instagram, where I share as much of my work as I can. I share, like, behind the scenes in my studio, and that's also just my name, at RithikaMerchant. Yeah, that's about it. And obviously, come see my shows in person if I'm in your city. (laughs) The next one will be in Paris. Do you have any plans for showing in New York? I'm selfishly asking. At the moment, I don't have anything scheduled, but stay tuned. I am trying to work on it. Let's manifest that. Maybe you need to paint a painting of it. (laughs) Make it come true. I actually really do. (laughs) Well, listen, I am just in awe of you. I'm in awe of your work. And I'm just so grateful that you took the time to speak with me about it today. Thank you so much, Ritika. Thank you. It was my pleasure. That's it for the show. Thank you again to Rithika Merchant for sharing her gorgeous flights of fancy with me. Do you have questions, feedback, need some witchly advice, or just want to share something magical that happened to you recently? Drop us an email at witchwavepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and you just might make it on the witch wire. The Witch Wave is a phantasmophile production written and produced by me, Pam Grossman. This episode was recorded and edited by Josh Wilcox and myself. Our theme music is the song Hand and I by Lycanthia. Special thanks go to Matt Freeman, Laura Antal, and Cece Pascal. You can check out information about this and other episodes on our website and now by Witchwave merch at witchwavepodcast.com. Please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and give us lots of sparkly stars. It really, truly makes a difference and helps other people find the show. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WitchwavePod, and you can check out my witch emoji for iPhone by going to witchemoji.com or downloading it in the App Store. Please consider ordering my book, Witchcraft, or picking up my book, Waking the Witch, which is available everywhere now. And if you want more Witchwave or you would just like to support the show, please join us over on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash witchwave. Thank you so much for listening. Witches are the future. I'll catch you next time on The Witch Wave. <laughs>